Matsutake, The Excitement Before Finding Them, Yamaguchi Soto, 1642-1716. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. This week, we are discussing a book that's about a lot of things, but mostly about mushrooms. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Namiskwichi, Wiskaigan. Beaver Hill House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papa's Chase Cree territory. The Papa's Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, This region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. A portion of the book we are talking about today touches on the United States Pacific Northwest, in the homeland of the Klamath, Modoc, and Yahuskin band of Snake Paiute people. In the pursuit of logging revenues, the majority of the traditional lands of the Klamath tribes was taken, and the treaty rights and obligations between the U.S. government and the tribes were at one point terminated. In 1986, the treaty rights were recognized once more by the U.S. government, and some of the reservation land was returned, but at a large social cost. The Klamath tribes have developed a restorative management plan for the overlogged lands that were returned to them. But why must it fall on the inhabitants of the land since time immemorial to clean up colonial messes? What about returning land, like municipal land that goes up for sale to Indigenous nations and organizations, instead of land that has been sucked dry? Some things to think about and maybe to bug your city councillors about. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are talking about a book by Anna Tsing called The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins. Myself and a fellow Terra Informer, I'm Sarah Chitsas, got together last week to discuss this unique story. The Mushroom at the End of the World, published in 2015, follows the commodity chain of Matsutake mushrooms. It dives into fungal ecologies and forest histories as a way to explore how we might cohabituate during a time of widespread human destruction. Tsing explores the complexity of this commodity chain through interviews with and stories of Japanese gourmets, capitalist traders, nature guides, and many more types of folks who find themselves involved in the world of Matsutakis. Anna Tsing is a professor of anthropology, and the kind of work that she does in this book is called ethnography. Ethnography is a research method that seeks to know the world from the standpoint of its social relations. This involves hanging out with people who are involved with the subject you are researching and doing lots of talking and observing. 
Singh describes her goals for ethnography as a way to learn how to think about a situation with the people she's learning from, and to develop research questions and categories with the people who are involved. Before we dive into some of the heavy topics that this book focuses on, here are Sarah and I's initial thoughts on the book, and why if you're not a fan of nonfiction normally, you might have better luck with ethnographies. To preface, I have only read a couple of sections of this book, (laughs) but the couple of sections that I read, I'm like very excited to read the rest of it. Like it was very good and very engaging and it made me think about things and maybe be like a little bit more optimistic. I also did not read more than a couple of sections of the book, but I am also excited to read more. I think it seemed like the approach towards these mushrooms takes on such like this like reverent approach. It's so respectful and I feel like there's so much awe for the mushrooms that I think was really beautiful to read. Like it made it really pleasant because I was like, you know, something as kind of almost mundane as a mushroom feels so special reading about it in this book, which was really nice. And I also just liked in that first section how much she talks about like the collaborators on the research. And I like that it is um, multi-site ethnography. So it's really tying together kind of similar topics or experiences from across cultures and across the world with different folks from different research backgrounds. I feel like entering into the research world like I am in social research, I feel like that kind of works is really exciting to me. Uh, I really appreciated her description when she was talking in that section about ethnography and like the point of it and what it is. And she was saying the point of it is to learn how to think about a situation together with one's informants and like research categories developing with the research, not before it. And I think that was so just like a great way to describe what I kind of think social research should be. And I think what a lot of people are like really trying to do. And I thought it was, yeah, so cool just to say that this book and this research, like a fungal body, are just like lots of different hidden connections and complicated. Everyone is adding something different and all these different things relying on each other. So yeah, I agree. That was really cool. And I do find nonfiction can be quite dry with the exception of ethnographies, which are, I guess, probably most of the nonfiction books I've read in my own time have been ethnographical works from social scientists on a variety of topics. And I find I like them more because they read more like stories than like Mm. more theoretical pieces often do, at least in what I've read, which is limited. Um, And so I think that's part of why I like this is because it, even though it is about mushrooms so it's not like about a social phenomena per se it's obviously applying like theories of capitalism to this context um it does read like small stories and I like I like stories you know they're nice they're more digestible and they feel I don't know they feel good to read for some reason this book is about a lot of things and a lot of big ideas but it all circles back to matsutake mushrooms Matsutake mushrooms, or if you want to get specific, Tricholoma matsutake in Europe and Asia, as well as Eastern North America, and Tricholoma magnivillari in Western North America, 
are wild mushrooms that largely live in human-disturbed forests. Matsutake are a mycorrhizal mushroom, meaning that their life cycle includes a symbiotic relationship with a host plant. In the case of Matsutake, their hosts are pine trees. In Japan and Korea, the most common host for Matsutake mushrooms are red pine trees, while in the Pacific Northwest of North America, Tricholoma magnavillari are usually found in jack pine forests. In the mushroom at the end of the world, Matsutakes are described as an aromatic mushroom. Their smell is where their allure comes from. Tsing uses phrases like autumn aroma, a smell that evokes sadness and the loss of summer's easy riches, to describe the peculiar smell of these mushrooms. The feelings of changing season that these mushrooms bring with them made them a popular subject for poetry. According to the internet, because I have never had the opportunity to smell a Matsutake mushroom, they have a distinct spicy aromatic odor. I like looked up, what does, what do they taste like? Like what do the Matsutake mushrooms mm. taste like? And this one website has a nice description. So it says, Matsutake mushrooms have a pungent, woodsy, spicy flavor and aroma unlike any other mushroom. And although they're often compared to earthy, multi-dimensional truffles, another fungi with a singular sensory profile. Other flavor notes for Matsutake mushrooms include cinnamon, pine, and cedar. In the prologue, Tsing describes a timeline of Matsutake in Japan. In the 8th century, Matsutake first appeared in Japanese written record in a poem. These mushrooms became common around Nara and Kyoto in Japan during the Edo period, between 1603 and 1868, where deciduous forests had been cut down for wood for both constructing buildings and for fuel, creating disturbed places where the red pine could germinate. However, during the Meiji Restoration at the end of the Edo period, a time of urban development in Japan, concrete and fossil fuels took over and less wood was needed, allowing the deciduous forest to grow back relatively undisturbed, preventing pine, and therefore Matsutake mushrooms, from growing. This was also a time of rapid economic development in Japan, meaning that Matsutake were in demand as luxury gifts. With the decrease in supply, the price skyrocketed. According to an article from a Japanese news site, in September 2021, three Matsutake mushrooms weighing just 70 grams were bought at auction for a price of 830,000 yen, which converts to over $8,000 Canadian. The second part of the title of the book is On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. And this book is described as, quote, an original example of the relationship between capitalist destruction and collaborative survival, end quote. Those are some big ideas. Before we get into some of our thoughts on these big ideas, let's talk a little bit about capitalism. Capitalism is an economic system where the means of production are privately owned, and production, as well as the distribution of income, is guided by the operation of markets. Capitalism is a system for concentrating wealth, 
which leads to excess wealth that can be invested, which results in further concentrated wealth. In chapter four of A Mushroom at the End of the World, Singh explains a classic example of capitalism in a factory setting. The owner of a factory employs workers. This is what it means to privately own the means of production or the labor of the employees. The owner of the factory is able to concentrate wealth by paying workers less than the value of the goods that the workers are producing each day. The owner then accumulates this excess value and is able to invest it to accumulate even more wealth. Think profit over everything, individualism, private services and production of goods, and unequal distribution of wealth. Unfortunately, although capitalism is rooted in the idea of a free market, in which individuals can work to gain wealth and power and determine their own social standing, we now know that not everyone has equal access to opportunities that will allow them to accumulate wealth or power. People who fit into certain social categories, often heterosexual, white, middle-class people, and often men, tend to be afforded more privilege or power from the get-go. This allows them to have increased access to controlling the means of production and accumulating wealth. The connection between ecology and the economy is a big theme in A Mushroom at the End of the World. The capitalist drive to concentrate wealth has made both humans and non-humans into resources for investment. Investors have reduced people and non-human beings down to singularities, resources to be used in the progress of a production line or commodity chain. But we aren't singularities, and neither are non-human beings like mushrooms. We can't exist in a vacuum or in a void of nothingness. Singh uses the concept of assemblages, which she defines as, quote, open-ended entanglements of ways of being, end quote. Other phrases used in the book to describe assemblages are open-ended gatherings and lifeways coming together. The complexities of how interconnected life forms on this planet are, including the entanglement of interspecies relationships, is complex. The simplification of humans and non-humans through capitalism into resources, like we talked about previously, tries to unravel these entanglements, and the results often are, unsurprisingly, not great. When I read the like very beginning part and was talking about entanglements, um, I'm watching the Expanse right now. So and good. yeah, I'm on season <laughs> two. I watch it with my dad once a week. The episode we watched last night was sort of going into the precarity, which is a big part of the book, of these like man-made networks or like quote unquote ecosystems, like on the space stations. If you haven't seen the show, humans are living in space and like on stations and colonizing like moons and stuff like that so yeah there's these little ecosystems on space stations and in these like agricultural domes where people live and there's a botanist character who was talking and he was talking about he was noticing these plants like sort of starting to yellow on in one of the agrodomes and he was, you know, trying to figure out what was happening. And then there'd been like this small misbalance in the way they were getting like hydroponically watered and given nutrients and stuff like that. And so he was talking about how in like a large complex network or system, like a whole forest or something like that, 
there's enough like different pathways or entanglements that if one fails, others can pick up the slack and the system won't die. And it's sort of like resilient in that way. But if it's a smaller system, there often aren't enough pathways or it's like not, there aren't, there isn't that layer of entanglements to make up for if one fails. So then if one fails, there's like this cascade and the whole system eventually ends up dying or will die much easier. So I thought that was, that was just a cool, like, oh, it's so, it's all coming together. It's all connecting. I was also thinking about entanglements and how I think through capitalism in order to try to like streamline systems and processes in the supply chain, we tend to like unentangle or disentangle these kind of natural entanglements that exist. And I think that makes us so much more vulnerable to any kind of disruption. Um, I mean, we've seen that with, I think, We've talked about like supply chains being super disrupted with COVID-19, for example. Yeah, I think it, it really detracts from our resilience in terms of global systems and food chains, especially. I think we have been made very acutely aware of the example of agriculture was cool. So like commercial agriculture, really trying to simplify things down to like a single crop that like everything ripens mm-hmm. at the same time. And then if you look at other types of farming, like maybe types of more sustainable or regenerative farming, there's like multiple quote unquote rhythms. Um, She said that like include other types of plants or crops and pollinators and other animals. And it becomes like a polyphonic system instead of like a single rhythm. In the book, A Wageless Life by Ian G.R. Shaw and Marv Waterstone, the authors describe capitalism as, quote, more than just an economic system. It is an existential conflict felt deep in our bones, our minds, and our ecosystems, end quote. This feeling of dread and uncertainty in our current timeline related to our economic system, the climate crisis, etc., is a starting line where Tsing places us at the beginning of the book. Singh describes the spaces where these singular resources can no longer be produced as capitalist ruins or abandoned places as investors search for new sources of income. Where do we go from here, where so much of our world seems to be left in the ruins of capitalism? This is where she encourages us to find hope. These ruins can be lively, like a germinating pine forest ready to be hosts for matsutake mushrooms in the wake of deforestation. These capitalist ruins, as well as pericapitalist spaces, which Singh introduces as places that exist both inside and outside capitalism, help spark curiosity about the future, our labor, and where we're headed. In the Society for Cultural Anthropology by Camille Fraser, she links it to like some work she's been doing about work and non-works like labor and in talking about she takes peri-capitalism and looks at like how that how those kind of peri-capitalist sites alter our perception of work and I'm not going to be able to do it justice so if I if this part stays in the episode I'll I will link the article (laughs) she gave an example of like peri-urban farming in India and specifically in, I believe it's pronounced Bangalore, um, which is a huge IT tech city in Southern India. 
and the future of agriculture seems kind of uncertain in this area. There's lots of people like moving into the city to do um, like more tech or IT work. So people are sort of thinking, oh, well, are there going to be enough people farming to like provide enough food for everybody in the coming future? But then there's also lots of IT professionals who are like buying land near the cities and like wanting to go work on their farms during the weekends because they're seeing it as kind of like a, she described it as people doing it as like a more productive way of like spending their weekends than like going to the mall or, you know, like going shopping, stuff like that. It's really interesting. She talks about like, what does farm work mean for a farmer? What does like farm work mean for an IT professional who's maybe only going out on the weekends? So like, where does work end? and non-work begin in these like peri-capitalist spaces, I thought was really cool. The way that so much of this book links to labor, and then it's also talking about mushrooms, I I think was really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't have any like big brain thoughts on that currently, but I think that it's a really (laughs) cool connection. I feel like I'd be curious to read more about pericapitalism and I'm sure there's information written about volunteering. Um, mm-hmm. cause you know, I mean, volunteering really, and I mean, I volunteer for multiple <laughs> organizations, but volunteering is really, you know, free labor that we're doing. And I have a lot of thoughts about volunteering that I won't get into because that's not super relevant, but I think that'd be really <laughs> interesting <laughs> Now, like we've said, Sarah and I haven't read the whole book. Oops. But the great thing about this book is that it's kind of written like an assemblage. Different parts overlapping and connecting each other, but they're also great on their own. So while I have only read a couple of the sections, it introduced a lot of big ideas that we've talked about so far in this episode. We have done our best to explain them here and in our discussion, But honestly, doing a deep dive into this whole book could probably take up a whole semester-long course. I would definitely encourage you to pick up The Mushroom at the End of the World and read about these concepts for yourself. To finish off this episode, here's Sarah and I talking about how this book made us feel, spoiler alert, pretty good actually, despite being about capitalist ruins, and some final thoughts. I did really enjoy, there's a piece um, in the prologue where she's talking about how when she feels like her world is falling apart, she goes for walks. And I think that little piece resonated so much, especially in the context of having gone through COVID and like that shift to working from home and finding like needing to take time to go outside and have some fresh air and escape from the little tiny bubble that is my apartment. Um, So I liked that. That wasn't even necessarily about the content of the book. (laughs) But yeah, I think talking about capitalism and applying it to human and non-human actors. So like the mushrooms, the bread pine um, people, landscapes, I think those kind of theoretical concepts are something that I've really struggled to wrap my head around that like actor network theory, but it's something I like pushing myself to think about. And so I appreciated that this is like a very fleshed out, like theoretical work, I guess, also in that it is going through these different relationships between people and mushrooms and landscapes and, you know, all these different actors. The one feeling, I forget the specific line, but, and I forget if it was in one of the little poems that like preface each chapter or if she wrote it, 
but it's in the chat it's in the prologue somewhere just talking about the nostalgia of fall and I thought the nostalgia of fall is such a specific mood I always forget about it and then sometime in September it always happens where there's that smell in the air kind of like rotting leaves and just like the cold I don't know and it just always brings like emotions and feelings and I don't know why but they talk about it a little bit just that kind of like morning the summer and then like moving into the winter so that like really struck a chord with me I was like oh I know exactly even though it's not smelling matsutake mushrooms here in Edmonton Alberta I don't think (laughs) Um, it is smelling something about fall and it definitely invokes nostalgia (laughs) and then another feeling that I guess about like the climate crisis like living in it living in this time we're living in right now I think it was in the Camille Fraser for the Society for Cultural Anthropology wrote uh, this article about the book and the first line is reading the mushroom at the end of the world is both pacifying and energizing in a moment that seems increasingly like the end capital T, capital E. (laughs) And I thought, oh, that really resonates right now. Just because, yeah, with COVID and with like the climate crisis and like lots of violence everywhere, I feel like it's, it can be tough to feel like hopeful about where we're going and like what even within like a short human lifespan might, like things might change. So I feel like this book definitely gave me even though I've only read a couple sections and I should probably read the whole thing um (laughs) before I make any like this book made me feel this way because maybe those are chapters somewhere that will change my mind but from the introductory sections that I've read it gave me a bit of a feeling of hope and it was the same kind of feeling that I saw like a random like quote or video or something recently where it was like sort of in the vein of I think it's like solar punk like eco-punk those kind of genres where it's really like hopeful future like different kind of future we don't have to like succumb to the destruction that humanity seems like is heading towards and yeah it was about like rejecting dystopia stuff like that and when I first saw that it kind of hit me like I was like oh thank goodness it can be different and I don't feel like that all the time, but I think something about this book and just how her suggestions about like, yeah, we're going to have to be imaginative and very curious about it, but there is a way that we can live together with all our human and non-human beings on earth in a way in these ruins of capitalism, she calls it. So yeah, I'm excited to explore more of the book and sort of see where that goes, but I like the feeling of hope that it's giving me initially. What I'm thinking of right now is at my local farmer's market in the summer, they have a mushroom stand some weeks and they have all these different kinds of mushrooms. So I'm really excited to try different ones. But um, yeah, no, I think it was just a a pleasant read and it made me think, which was nice. (laughs) Not in like a doom and gloomy way though, you know, like it felt like a positive experience to be reading this book, which is very nice. I'm like honestly surprised at myself for reading a nonfiction book and being 
like excited to keep reading it. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. The episode this week was written by Charlotte Thomason, Elizabeth O'Dell, and myself, Hannah Cunningham. And thank you to Sarah Chitzaz for discussing this book with me. And this episode was produced by myself, Hannah Cunningham. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, tara at cgsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.